Hey friends, and welcome back to this week's episode of Fit Friends Happy Hour. I'm your host, Katie, and this is episode 201, and I'm so excited to bring to you another fabulous non-diet dietitian, Claire Carlton. Claire is a registered dietitian who specializes in nutrition for digestive disorders. So she works with women one-on-one in her virtual private practice called Nourish with Claire. As a specialist in nutrition for gastrointestinal health, she guides clients through her signature gut health blueprint framework to unearth the root of chronic symptoms and help them discover lasting wellness. With a master's degree in nutrition combined with additional training in the areas of integrative and functional medicine nutrition and intuitive eating, Claire has created a holistic approach that focuses on one's relationship with food while integrating nutrition and lifestyle strategies that address the root cause of their health concerns. So this method for her helps her to help clients stay away from diet culture while they create mindful and sustainable habits to support their health and wellness goals. So if you remember a previous episode I did with dietitian Crystal Savoy, that was episode 151. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. I think today with Claire, we covered a lot of the similar topics that I talked about with Crystal in that previous episode. But I think every time we can hear a message about nutrition, about health, about intuitive eating, when we hear it from somebody else, we hear it in a different way. And we also hear at a different point in our life. So today, Claire and I discuss a lot of the common GI disorders out there, how someone gets diagnosed. I share her opinion, or she shares her opinion. I don't share her opinion. We talk about our opinions about elimination diets, about intuitive eating while also navigating GI issues. And she talks a little bit and gives actually some really tangible tips about how to have a healthy gut how to really nourish your microbiome and what does that mean and some of the tips that she has for promoting gut health. So without further ado, on to today's episode. And if you missed last week's free training talking about all things preparing for summer from a non-diet lens, click the link in the show notes. We will link to the replay that you can catch and check that out. Welcome to Fit Friends Happy Hour, a podcast about all things nutrition, fitness, and life in your 20s and 30s, all from a non-diet lens. I'm your host, Katie Hake, and I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified personal trainer. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people and experts from all walks of life about their relationship with food, exercise, and their bodies. I am on a mission to help you redefine the word fit, to help you stop quantifying and start living. Learn to stop measuring your success by the scale and find your fears. Claire, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to chat with you today. Tell us a little bit about yourself and just share with us your story. What's your story with food, your path to become a dietitian? Sure. So, I feel like my story with food was pretty uneventful until my late teen years, early 20 years. I feel really lucky and fortunate that I grew up with just a positive relationship with food. It was my me and my older sister. And I feel like my mom always, she cooked a lot at home, but there was always a wide variety of foods presented. And there was never really a lot of, from what I can remember, I don't think there was a lot of diet talk and she wasn't ever really dieting. So I just kind of in contrast to a lot of the people that I see, you know, we see that so much impacting the relationship with food, but I, I was spared of that. So I feel so grateful, but then inevitably just the society that we live in, right. You kind of get these exposures to the media and diet culture and all of these external influences that then can start to taint your relationship with food. But growing up, you know, up until my late teens, things were really great. I was not a picky eater. I liked a lot of different types of foods. Um, I was pretty active, but then in like late high school, I would say I got into, I had always played like sports. I played volleyball and liked to do running and jogging and things like that. In late high school, I got really into running. And during that time, I, it sparked my interest in nutrition and I got kind of interested in performance and food and, and just how nutrition can impact the body. 
And I was also interested in health too, because I came from a family with a lot of like healthcare practitioners. My mom was a nurse. I have a lot of aunts that were nurses. And so I kind of knew that I wanted to do something in the healthcare field, but I wasn't sure nursing was for me. So then I learned what a dietitian was and I was like, oh, you can make a career out of food and <laughs> nutrition. Yeah. Oh, cool. food. Okay. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, I was probably about 18 and I was actually dual enrolling at the local community college, like my last two years of high school. So it was pretty early on that I discovered that I wanted to do this. And so, however, that passion or that interest quickly kind of turned into an obsession and fascination with eating and, and just being very um, rigid with my food choices to the point where for a long time, probably at least a year and a half, I didn't realize it was a problem or unhealthy. But I, some of the behaviors I was having with just restriction and over-exercising, it came to a point once I had gotten to college, I moved away from home. And um, I think there was just a lot of things that triggered um, things kind of went in the opposite direction. And then, you know, I was restricting and then all of a sudden I was binging and it was just like, what is happening? I was so confused that here I am a nutrition major and I feel like this happens to so many of us, right? Such um, a common thread in so many dietitian stories. Yeah. Yeah. So I really kind of went to the end of the spectrum. I was just kind of back and forth and really struggling with these disordered eating behaviors. I finally did see a therapist and she, this was at the school counseling center and I'm so, I'm always, when I look back at my story and my experience, I'm so grateful for that because it was a really scary moment. Um, and she pushed me to see the dietitian at the college, this, the, in the counseling center. Can, can I pause you right there? Can I ask you yeah. what triggered you to even go see a therapist? Because, you know, on, on campus rec centers or college campuses, there's so many resources, but that's not always the norm to seek out that exactly. help. Yeah. So I had gotten to a point where I, I was really depressed and it was really impacting my life. And I'm, I was very close and transparent with my mom and my sister. Like they knew that what was going on and my mom really pushed it. She didn't force it, but she's like, you should just go check it out, Claire. Like just go see if they can help you. And my sister, she, she was a little, she was just, just under two years older than me. And she had struggled with disordered eating as well. She had been seeing a dietitian in our hometown. And so, so yeah, I just, um, my mom encouraged me to, to seek that out. And I did, and it ended up being amazing for me. So, yeah. yeah. So awesome that you had that support system. What was it like then seeing a dietitian? Because yeah, people don't have that experience, especially growing up. Yeah, it was scary. I was like, I, there was a lot of shame around it. Honestly, I was like, you know, I'm a nutrition major. Like I shouldn't be having these problems. Right. But she was, she was so amazing. She had just such a great sense of humor about it. And not, I mean, not making light of my issues, but she's like, you know, she basically made me feel like I wasn't alone. And she introduced me to the concepts of intuitive eating. She lent me the book intuitive eating. And that was my first exposure to that. And it was so crazy because it was so different from everything I was learning, but that really helped me. Um, it really helped me to start the process of healing my relationship with food. And back then I definitely don't think I understood all the nuance of intuitive eating, but it was a great starting point for me. So that, yeah, it was, it was so impactful. That's, I yeah. love that. So then what, right. So tell us a little bit about your practice now and what you do and yeah. how did you get into working with GI disorders yeah. specifically? Sure. So I'll share a little bit of the rest of that story of my path to becoming a dietitian, because after I kind of resolved my relationship with food and, and that took time, it doesn't, obviously you, everybody knows it doesn't happen overnight, but I was dealing with like some functional GI issues. And so that kind of, again, sparked my interest into this other side. I was being exposed to like some holistic and integrative nutrition stuff. And I was interested in that, but it kind of pulled me back in, into this like wellness culture in a negative way. But after I finished graduate school, I still was interested in all of that. I sought more training in integrative and functional nutrition through the Integrative and Functional Nutrition Academy. And over time in my early years as a dietitian, I started to see the problems in which that could create with just obsessions with food and using food, you know, food has amazing benefits to our body and health and mind and everything, but it can be taken too far. And so I think when that food as medicine approach gets taken to the extremes, it can then have that again, tie back to the negative relationship with food. So we'll talk more about that as we dive deeper, 
But I think my own journey with digestive problems really triggered my interest in it. And then in my career, early career, I kind of worked various jobs as a consultant dietitian. Eventually, I ended up in a gastroenterology clinic. So I worked in a GI clinic and that was where I was working with another dietitian and we had like six or seven doctors and I just learned so much. It was an amazing experience and that's really kind of where my passion grew. And now I'm in private practice specializing in digestive disorders. So tell us, and I think we'll get into some of this, but maybe let's start with just what are some of those common GI and for listeners when we say GI, that's our short, mm-hmm. short term, uh, easier, much easier than saying gastrointestinal. So can you explain to us what are some of those common disorders? Sure. So some of the most common ones that I see in my practice are irritable bowel syndrome. So the acronym for that is IBS. I also see a lot of inflammatory bowel disease. So that's kind of an umbrella term that encompasses Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So those are autoimmune conditions that have that are driven by inflammation. I also see a fair amount of SIBO, which is an acronym for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We can talk more about that later if we get there. I also see a lot of just chronic like constipation, diarrhea, functional issues like that. I see, I used to see a lot of gastroparesis when I was working in the GI clinic, especially in the adolescent population. And that has a big tie-in with eating disorders and disordered eating. I see a little bit of it now, but not as much as I did when I was in the practice. And gastroparesis is basically um, a delay in gastric emptying for those of you who aren't familiar. So that can cause a lot of problems with eating and, and, and things like that. So those are the most common ones I see. There's more, but that's the gist of what I typically see in practice. Those, yeah, like I think, like you said, there's so many, and at least for my short experience working with GI is that they can really overlap. And sometimes getting a diagnosis can be tricky and really take a long time. So can you walk us through how someone might get diagnosed or even know if they have one of these disorders? Sure. So I always, I think it's so important to seek an evaluation from a gastroenterologist. So if you have a history of having, you know, uncomfortable digestive symptoms, so it's hard, sometimes it can be difficult to distinguish like what's normal and what's the threshold for which I should then go seek an evaluation. And, um, you know, a little bit of bloating here and there is normal constipation, you know, during travel or certain things like that can be normal. But if something is, is happening on a daily, weekly, multiple times a week basis, it's definitely important to go get looked at. So talk to your primary care. They can send you to a specialist in your area. And when you go to the GI doctor, they're going to be asking you a lot of questions about your symptoms, about the timeline. They want to know, was there something specific that triggered this? For example, if somebody gets like a a gut bug, like a, you know, food, foodborne illness or something. And then after that, they never really recovered. That can cause a lot of issues. So we really want to figure out what happened in the history that, that may be contributed to this. Also looking a lot at family history, um, because certain things are genetic. So that will increase your risk of developing them. But once you see the GI doctor, they can make the determination, okay, what tests do we need to run? There can be some blood tests involved. There might be some imaging tests involved, like x-rays or abdominal ultrasounds or swallow studies or gastric emptying studies. So there's all kinds of exams. They might run some stool testing to check for inflammation in the stool. And then they may even, depending on the results of those, those are kind of the first steps that they'll look at. If that gives them any, if any alarm bells go off with the results of those tests, they might want to take a step further and do an endoscopy where they, you're, you're put asleep and they put a camera and they have a scope and it kind of inserts into your mouth and into your esophagus. They look, um, they look around in your stomach and in the uh, first parts of your small intestine. And then they also may want to do a colonoscopy where they're again, going through looking at a camera with a camera and looking at your colon and kind of seeing what's going on in there. And that can provide more insight too, especially if they're suspicious for something like inflammatory bowel disease or anything like that. So what I'm hearing is that there's lots of different, I mean, I think you listed like a very short out of, I'm sure so many different tests that they can perform. And basically as they're trying to discover, you know, what's happening, what's going on, what's the, the root issue. I'm curious, what are some of your thoughts? Because I get this question all the time on different consumer over-the-counter type tests, right? Like I'm I'm trying to think there's so many out there now, but like these consumer tests that you can buy, you can send in a stool sample and it'll tell you, you are, you know, all these foods are inflammatory to you or 
Tell us about some of those or another popular one that I know some dietitians are specialized in is like MRT Mm -hmm. testing. What are some of those Mm -hmm. and what should people look out for? Sure. Okay. That's a great question. And just stop me if I ramble too much because (laughs) there's a lot to this one, a lot to unpack. So yeah, there's so many over the counter, like consumer, direct to consumer testing now. And I think it's really, it's neat because people are interested and they want to know how they can best care for themselves. But it's so important that you have an expert to guide you because the interpretation of these tests is essential. And unfortunately, I see so many of those food sensitivity tests that look at IgG antibodies, so immunoglobulin G, and we know that true food allergies are IgE mediated. So these food sensitivity tests are looking at IgG antibodies, and we develop IgG antibodies to foods that we are actually tolerant to. So it's really just the immune system's memory that, okay, yeah, these foods are safe. We're eating these foods. So that really doesn't tell us that much. Now I will say there is some anecdotal evidence. So that means that certain people may take these tests and they eliminate the foods that it says they may be sensitive to, and they see improvements. So we're not necessarily sure why this is the case. And some people, we will see this, but not in everybody. And so it's really not recommended by um, the American Academy of, I don't know exactly what their formal name is, but the, uh, you know, the national credentials for allergists. Yeah. yeah. And then GI doctors aren't really going to recommend IgG testing either. Typically what I see a lot too, is there's a lot of confusion with like sensitivity, allergy, and intolerance and sensitivities and allergies, they are mediated by the immune system. They may or may not result in a digestive symptom. Food intolerances, they are mediated by the digestive system. So typically you're going to have a food intolerance when you have a deficiency in a specific type of enzyme to digest certain types of foods, specifically carbohydrate containing foods. If we think of like the most common one would be like a lactose intolerance. So you're deficient in the enzyme that breaks down lactose and that can cause a lot of symptoms. So um, I want to pause you there just for listeners, right? Listen how Claire said carbohydrates, lactose, milk. Like, I hope you're listening and hearing that, okay, it's a lot more complicated than just this over-the-counter test, right? And so this right here, as you're listening, should be, I don't want to say a red flag, but just a sign. Like, yes, it's a great option if you're curious. However, it's kind of just like the very slice of the surface, if even that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you know what I find is if the gut's in poor shape, So we can talk more about like what that means later on, but really like if there's imbalances going on in the gut, there are going to be issues tolerating foods. And it doesn't always mean there's an allergy. Yes, you're you're having some intolerances, but if we can work on some things, we'll we'll talk about some of those interventions. A lot of times those tolerance to those foods actually improves over time. And so what I'll see with these people that take these direct-to-consumer tests is they look at that and they see it as kind of like this golden ticket for what they need to do, this magic answer. And then they end up eliminating all these foods and they're still not feeling well. And we'll talk about how food elimination can lead to other issues as well. But those are the main problems. MRT is a different mechanism that they're testing. So I have seen, I know that some dietitians get amazing results with LEAP and MRT, which is a specific, essentially they're measuring like mediators, which are Mediators are what cause symptoms. So there are different things that are released in the blood in response to different food antigens or proteins. And sometimes doing that test and and following that protocol with a specialized dietitian can be helpful, especially in severe, severe cases of like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, but it's not typically the first choice. It's so restrictive for a period of time. And the goal again is to broaden everything. But if we can do other things first and get good results, then I don't like to go down that path if we don't need to. So you mentioned this briefly, but how, right, elimination diets are often prescribed for digestive issues or I like, again, I see this all the time with consumers and people, just everyday people doing their own research and saying, Mm -hmm. okay, well, I need to cut out gluten. I need to cut out dairy, right? And sometimes these elimination diets can even be prescribed for digestive issues. So how can this make matters worse? Yeah, that's a great question. So And there is, I always like to preface this. There's so much nuance. I, you know, (laughs) there's so much gray area with GI and, you know, kind of this gentle nutrition approach with everything. But um, the most common elimination diet that I will see in practice and being used in the GI community, there are many, but let's just, for an example, we'll talk about the low FODMAP diet. So FODMAP is an acronym. 
for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. You don't have to memorize that. Just remember the acronym FODMAP. And essentially, these are a class of carbohydrate foods that, and this is an evidence-based diet, meaning that we have done a lot of research on this diet, and we know that it works for a really large percentage of people with irritable bowel syndrome and even some other conditions like IBD um, and just general like constipation, diarrhea, things of that nature. And so it it's effective. However, there's a lot of things that we need to be, a lot of screening criteria that needs to take place before we just recommend somebody take this. And it's not an easy diet. It's complex and there's multiple phases. And so some of the problems that can occur when starting an elimination diet is first of all, that lack of screening of who may be appropriate. So it's never appropriate for someone with an active eating disorder and even sometimes with a history of eating disorders because yeah, it was, can bring back. I was just mm-hmm. going to ask, sorry to interrupt you. What, what no, are like some problem. of those screening processes that yeah. may or may not be done? Mm-hmm. So definitely the history of disordered eating or eating disorder, malnutrition or weight loss. A lot of times in gastrointestinal disorders will see unintended weight loss. And that's, that's a sign that someone's not meeting their nutrient needs. And it's, it could be related to malabsorption. So they're not absorbing what they're taking in, or it could be related to simply not taking in enough nutrients and calories to support either growth if they're still growing or just maintenance. So that's, those are a couple of the screening criteria, especially too. I like to be careful with young children. I have used this diet in children in practice, but again, you just have to be very careful And then also availability, like, is this diet going to be accessible for people? What is their life like? I mean, is this something that's going to add more stress? Because if it's going to add more stress and they have too much going on, they don't have the bandwidth to do this, then it's not appropriate. We've got to meet them where they are and start with some maybe smaller interventions that might be helpful. But would you like me to kind of address some of the downsides to some of this? Yeah, let's talk about that. And and first of all, I just want to say, you know, I love, I love your approach and I love how you're explaining this. And I think that's the difference. People listening, working with a clinician like yourself is that they're looking at all these different pieces, right? Just like you said, if there's stress, if financial mm-hmm. burden, right? It's like they can't have access to certain foods. Like there's so many pieces that go into just, you know, like, like prescribing a diet, right. right? So just somebody listening, keep that in the back of your head. But yeah, let's talk about some of those you know, potential. Sure. Harms. So the first thing I see, and it's no fault of the GI doctors, it's, you know, a lot of times there's just a lack of time and they don't have, you know, the doctors that I worked with, they knew they weren't the nutrition experts. They always referred to us. And, you know, if they wanted somebody on a therapeutic diet, okay, let's call Claire or the other dietitian in to, to do some education. Um, so I loved that they valued our expertise, but some offices, they don't have dietitians on staff. And so in that case, Sometimes all they're able to do is give a one pager handout of a list of yes and no foods. And that's like the worst way to begin the low FODMAP diet because you don't get that true education of how to properly implement it. A lot of times they don't know that there's various phases to the diet and they just end up eating based on these lists of yes and no foods without having instruction as to how to progress through the diet and liberalize the diet. So expand and add new foods back in. So that's, that's a big one long-term on any type of elimination or or restricted diet can increase risk for nutrient deficiencies. So that's one potential downside. I also see people that they feel really good when they begin the low FODMAP diet, because again, it's effective for, I think, you know, a lot of studies have shown, like, if you're going to respond to the low FODMAP diet, like you're going to see results pretty quickly. And then also um, like up to 80 something percent of people with IBS will see positive improvement. So that's a pretty, you know, large number. But um, because they feel so good on it, a lot of times they become anxious or feel fearful around foods. They don't want to begin that reintroduction process because they do feel good. And so then, you know, we have to work around some of those food fears and exposing them to these reintroductions so that they can, again, liberalize the diet and figure out what their true triggers are. Another common thing, and, and this is shown in the research as well, we'll see a decrease in microbiome diversity. So we have all these bugs living in our gut. And when you are reducing the amounts of different carbohydrates, carbohydrates specifically are a superfood for our gut bugs. And so when we are restricting certain types, we are limiting the amount of fuel that these good bugs have. And so when we're not feeding them what they need, the substrates that they need, you're going to see those populations decline. And they see that in as little as four weeks on the low FODMAP diet. 
Thank you for saying that. We just had an episode the other week about just talking strictly about carbs and like, there you go. Let's yeah. That's another reason. <laughs> carbs help your GI bugs. I love that. Can you yeah. talk a bit about the reintroduction phase and why that's so important and, and what are some things that you're looking for as a dietitian when somebody's reintroducing foods? Like what's the goal? What does that look like? Yeah. So typically um, I give people a schedule or we'll start, you know, kind of where they feel comfortable, but you're essentially introducing like one class of FODMAP at a time for a period of like a few days. And you're kind of increasing the amount that you take in each subsequent day, unless it's amount that you would like never eat. Like if you're never going to eat a whole cup of mushrooms, like you don't have to test that much, you know? Um, But we kind of want to see a threshold. And while you're doing this reintroduction phase, you're not even so say you have a successful reintroduction before you go to the next one, you're not automatically adding that food back into the diet because FODMAPs, they have a cumulative effect. So if you continue to add it back in FODMAPs, even if you've had a successful reintroduction, as you're trying new things, you could get above a certain threshold where it does provoke symptoms and it complicates how you're able to identify new reintroductions. Like, are they triggering? So it's a little bit complicated, but typically I have people follow a particular schedule and we're looking for changes in their symptoms, um, an increase in, you know, diarrhea, sudden diarrhea, urgency, constipation, any return in like severe, severe bloating. I always tell people like a little bit of a, like a gas bubble traveling through your stomach. Isn't, doesn't necessarily mean that it's failed, you know? So there's kind of some, and I, I also have people really closely track their symptoms as they're doing this. So we have a little digital food journal that they're looking at to monitor those symptoms as they reintroduce. So tell us how can, right, we're talking about intuitive eating as well. Mm -hmm. How how can intuitive eating be challenging while navigating GI issues? And maybe I think you said you had experience with this personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a great question. So when I see, we, we know from the research that there is a lot of overlap between disordered eating behaviors and gastrointestinal symptoms. And so what I see is two kind of common scenarios. So in the first scenario, you might have somebody with a history of chronic dieting behaviors, disordered eating or an eating disorder. And that in and of itself has impacted gut function. And that can happen in various ways. But one of the major things that happens is that it can impact motility. And then as a result of motility, so motility is that motion of peristalsis. So things moving through the GI tract And, and the GI tract is basically a muscle, you know, it propels things through. And so when motility is impacted either fast or slow, it can result in a lot of symptoms. And so when somebody has this history of chronic dieting or disordered eating, say they're introduced to intuitive eating by some way, you know, however it may be, and they're ready to embrace this and they want to start this journey, having digestive symptoms can really complicate that process because if they are having symptoms all the time, it can be really challenging to navigate through that process. And there's a lot of fear around what introducing some of these past forbidden foods might do for their symptoms. And so we see that. And then on the other hand, I might have somebody that maybe didn't have a a history of dieting, but maybe they have always had like a chronic digestive issue or they've had one for a long time. And that in and of itself has led them to start restricting their intake and manipulating their diet and nutrition. So then they're suddenly, you know, years or months have gone by and they're eating a select handful of foods. And so then they get to a point where they don't have any trust in their body. They don't trust their body's natural cues. And um, it makes it challenging to really even listen to the natural cues of the body. So it kind of comes from two ways. Like some people have this history of like, being really entrenched in diet culture and some people don't, but GI issues kind of overlap either way. And so really a big piece of kind of learning how to pay attention again is getting people to slow down. And that's one of my biggest things is like stress management and mindfulness, which we can definitely dive deeper into. But that's those are some of the biggest challenges I see when we're trying to work on intuitive eating and really relaxing the relationship with food and learning to nourish your body with kindness and compassion and and all of that, it can be challenging, but there are some gentle nutrition practices that we can kind of implement. I would say like the first biggest thing is consistency. The GI tract loves consistency. And while, you know, with intuitive eating, we do want to embrace the natural cues of the body. Sometimes when you don't trust those natural cues, having a structure really early on can be helpful to get people started getting connected to their bodies again. 
I, I just love the specialty that you're in because I think it's so oh. fascinating. <laughs> and I think for somebody listening, it's so important because there are so many, there's so many nuances to intuitive eating as it is, right? And then you throw in some sort of medical condition, especially one that we know can exacerbate and show up in different ways as far as symptoms go, it makes it really tricky. So how can somebody differentiate like diet culture from anxiety around food, from actual issues, right? Because I've even had clients myself who have experienced, you know, explained or verbalized a lot of symptoms when they eat Mm -hmm. or don't eat. And what we found is that there's just a lot of anxiety that's showing up as stomach cramps or loss of hunger cues when it really, they were just in this heightened, stressed out stage, whatever it came to the mealtime. Absolutely. That's a great question. And so one of the biggest pieces, which we did address earlier was that evaluation. So we do need to, to really determine, is there something deeper going on? Let's get this work up from the gastroenterologist. And then from there we can assess further. But one of the things that I had that I was thinking of when you asked that question was, um, yeah, in order to determine if it's, you know, an ingrained diet culture or wellness culture belief versus a true issue, we've got to dig deeper. But in many times, it's so important for us to validate their experience because, you know, I want people to know so that true. what they're feeling is real. And it can be really challenging when people tell you it's all in your head and different things like that. But sometimes, you know, if we do rule out other issues and they're still having symptoms, this is more what we consider to be like a functional gastrointestinal issue where, and when we say functional, that basically means that there's nothing going on with your anatomy. So the structure of your GI tract, but there's issues going on with motility and the connection between the gut and the brain. And so there can be food intolerance, but a lot of times we can improve that, that food intolerance by working on that stress management piece, calming down, mindful eating, and and really um, honing in on those behaviors versus having to pull out a bunch of foods. So yeah, it can be difficult, but that assessment is key. So so it sounds like for somebody, if they get an assessment, that would be kind of the next stages, right? Do we, mm-hmm. as far as like from your standpoint as, mm-hmm. the, as the dietitian, do we take this elimination diet route, or do we focus on some of more of those behavioral type interventions first? Exactly. Because if I'm working with a person and we don't have those really basic foundations in place first, then I don't necessarily see a need to start with the elimination diet. I want to see how these basic foundations of nourishing and feeding your body on a regular basis, how can that impact your symptoms? And once we get that under, you know, once we fine tune all of that, then if we're still having problems, then maybe we need to change some other things. Yeah. It's like, what's, what's the least that we can do to have the biggest impact? Absolutely. And go from there. I I love that. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important for somebody listening. Like if you're looking for a dietitian, if you're looking for like, that should be the goal, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I always say like, as you eliminate more foods, like I I created an Instagram post one time and I basically like made a graph and it was a line graph. And on one side, it was like quality of life. And then on the bottom side, it was like number of foods restricted. And the the more foods you restricted, the more quality of life kind of went down. So I had like some basic eliminations up here. And then as we went down, like paleo gaps, keto, like all these crazy elimination diets. And, you know, it's true. Again, I'm an advocate for these diets in a certain, you know, place in time, especially low FODMAP and some other ones that, that are evidence-based for GI disorders. But a lot of times we can see improvements without going that far. And I want people to be able to enjoy food, enjoy social situations, be able to connect with people. And because that's, you know, food, as we know, it's so much more than fuel, it's connection, it's information, it's, you know, it's, it's so much. So Something that I just find fascinating as as a dietitian, you mentioned that elimination diets, right, have a, have its place. But ultimately, there's foods that you can eliminate for a while and then bring them back in. A perfect example that I think is amazing that in kids with epilepsy, I didn't know this. I learned this like within the past few years that put them on a ketogenic diet and they will have no seizures. You know, again, it depends on the person, mm-hmm. but after like a year, it's not meant to be long-term. I think that's so awesome and just is so interesting. So can you speak to that a little bit of what 
what the long-term goal is with elimination diets. We, we kind of yeah. touched on it, but let's go a little deeper. Absolutely. For sure. So, um, and I always tell people like if going back to those, the reintroduction, like if you have a quote unquote failed challenge, that doesn't mean that you have to restrict that food forever. We've got to try again because the microbiome changes over time. And so as you liberalize the diet more and more, you're going to get more of those good bugs. And these bugs actually help to digest our foods. And so when you have a wide variety of these foods uh, or of, of these bugs, you know, it's really going to improve your gut health long-term and improve your ability to tolerate certain foods. So the end goal is really to, like you had said, is the least restrictive diet possible to manage symptoms and improve quality of life. And so over time, that really looks like, you know, maybe for some people, it might be as really small handful. Like for example, apples is a common one in IBS that people struggle with. So, you know, is tell people like, you know, after we get through, if, if apples are still an issue, you know, you may figure out a certain threshold, like you, maybe you can't do a whole apple, but a whole, or like half of an apple sliced into like a salad or on something else or as a snack, you could still enjoy it and get the benefits of that food and the fibers in that food without triggering your symptoms. So again, it's about finding we talked earlier about that, how it's so common to have that all or nothing thinking around food. It's bringing it back to this balance where like, oh yeah, my body can handle that. And I trust that I can handle this. And you've got to push yourself out of your comfort zone though. And that can be one of the most challenging parts, this but long-term, a- yeah, the goal is just as, as wide variety as possible. And that's so cheesy, but that does give me chills because I think that gives somebody listening hope. If you do struggle with GI issues and you're you're, nav- you're in the season of navigating that, it's let's get away. We can, it's possible to get away from that black or white, all or nothing thinking to still have some of those foods that you really love and enjoy. It's just, okay, can we find a way? Can we learn to live in the gray a little bit to find that sweet spot that works best for you? So you talked about microbiome a little bit. Mm-hmm. Why do they say that that is the second brain and what are some of your top tips to, yeah. to promote a healthy gut? That's a great question because I think it's probably one of the most common issues. So the gut microbiome is, it's really the community of microorganisms that are living in our gut. And when we talk about the gut microbiome, the large majority of them, of the gut microbes are living in our large intestine or our colon. And so that's where we want them to be. Sometimes problems can happen if they, if they go elsewhere, (laughs) Um, having a few elsewhere is okay, but too many can start to cause problems. And so we have this uh, gut brain axis or this gut brain connection between our brain and our gut. And they have, uh, it's a bi-directional communication pathway. We have a nervous system, the enteric nervous system that uh, innervates through uh, our entire GI tract via the vagus nerve. And so communication happens back and forth between this through neuroendocrine mechanisms. So different hormones and neurotransmitters and also um, bacteria even are able to communicate. So it's really interesting the way these microbes can, can how, how much impact they have. And so when there is a disconnection between the gut and the brain, which can happen for a variety of reasons, like chronic stress can impact the gut-brain connection. That's so um, interesting. It really is. And then we also see um, TBIs, so traumatic brain injuries, something like a concussion can impact the gut-brain connection. So there's a lot of different things that can impact it, but when it gets disrupted, you will see shifts in motility. So again, we talked about that and the problems that it can cause, but the primary issue there, again, is slow or fast, it can cause problems. We need it to be have this right balance of, of the pace at which things are moving. And then it also impacts, I don't know if I had addressed this, but when the gut and the brain aren't communicating properly, it impacts the amount of digestive secretions that are being secreted. And so if we are having inadequate production of these digestive juices, we're not going to be digesting and absorbing our food properly. And so we need to have enough stomach acid to be digesting our food. And stomach acid, it also is important to prevent infection from any potential pathogens or bad bugs that we might be ingesting from like contaminated food or something like that. So, and then it's important for protein digestion and absorption of certain nutrients. And then the acidity of the stomach contents, once the food goes from the stomach into the small bowel, that acidity, and it has to be at a certain acidity to trigger the pancreas to then release digestive enzymes into the small intestine and then bicarbonate, which is going to neutralize that acid. But if it's not acidic enough, you're not going to get as much of like a bolus or a spurt 
of those enzymes into the small intestine. And when you have, you know, deficiency of those enzymes or not, not quite enough that can in turn impact the way that you're digesting and absorbing foods and and tolerance of foods too. Because if you're having like partially digested foods, you're going to get excessive bacterial fermentation and bacterial fermentation is good for a lot of reasons, which we can address as well, but it can also cause symptoms for people because a byproduct of fermentation is gas. And so that can cause a lot of bloating or distension. Sometimes it can cause a lot of fluid or water to be pulled into the bowel, which can cause diarrhea. So I'm not sure if I answered the full question. I kind of went on a tangent <laughs> No, <there. laughs> but talking about just how important the microbiome is and, and how there mm-hmm. is so much connected. And, you know, for somebody listening, they're hearing, oh my gosh, this sounds really complicated. What tips would you have, you know, for somebody who's maybe not experiencing major GI issues, maybe like mild, right? They're like, I don't think I'm at that threshold that I need a full evaluation yet. What are some of the tips that you have to promote a healthy gut and just overall yeah. gut health, like the things that most of us should be doing most of the time. Sure. So I have two kind of main categories. First, I'll start with like the mindful eating piece. I think that mindful eating, and you know, we know that with intuitive eating, we are starting to pay more attention to the sensory aspects of the meal. So we're really diving deep onto those patterns. So when, before you sit down for a meal, when you have the time, you know, not every meal is going to be perfect, but you know, when you do have the time to sit down and really before the meal, smelling the different flavors in the food and the spices that you're using, thinking about the um, colors on the plate and and just kind of making note of them. You don't have to do anything specific, just observing it and really like appreciating the beauty, right? Of the meal, just creating this whole sensory experience, the mouthfeel, like, is it creamy? Is it, you know, what flavors are you tasting? So there's many aspects of mindful eating, but I think really paying attention to those sensory qualities can be helpful. Another thing is trying to prioritize some time, like if at all possible, I know that we're all busy, but if you can slow down and get away from your desk or get away from your working environment um, at lunchtime, get outside or get to a table away from a computer where you can really pay attention to your meal, that can be helpful as well. And making sure that you're chewing really well. So digestion starts in the mouth. We have enzymes in our saliva that begin to break down carbohydrates as we're chewing. Again, in the mouth, we get that mechanical digestion from the teeth chewing and that mastication. And then we get the chemical breakdown of food through those enzymes in the saliva. So the chewing is really important. I like to tell people, practice it. It's not going to be perfect every time, but try to get to like an applesauce or like pudding consistency is kind of gross to think about. But just to kind of give you an idea of what that bolus of food should feel like before you swallow. And each type of food, like a salad is going to require a steak is going to require more chewing than, than something like a banana, right? So you'll kind of learn what's appropriate based on the type of foods that you're eating. Another tip kind of with that slowing down aspect is diaphragmatic breathing. So this can be really helpful because doing these breathing exercises before meals can help to get you in your parasympathetic nervous system. So that's our rest and digest mode. And if we're in fight or flight or we're stressed out and we're eating on the go, our body's not really primed to digest a meal. And so when possible, again, that slowing down process can be helpful, but the diaphragmatic breathing can engage that parasympathetic response. What is, what does that look like? What's the difference between, yeah, I can't even say it Yeah, it's versus just breathing. Yeah. Like how so does somebody know the difference? About, like, yeah. When you think about like just regular breathing, like a lot of times it's really shallow and it's kind of like in our chest or up in our shoulders. Right. So when we're engaging in that diaphragmatic breathing, there's a few different types. I really like box breathing. Um, and there's four, seven, eight breathing is another one, but, um, really think about like the rise and fall of your belly. And when you're inhaling, really try to like I'm just kind of doing it right now. I like to put my hand on my belly and I like to just feel, I like to inhale really slowly and just feel that expansion, um, really breathing down deep into your belly versus just like, like up into your chest. Does that make sense? Um, and there's a couple of different like exercises. I always give people some handouts on some, some of my favorites, but there's some different ones you can do. I love these tips for promoting gut health because I think a lot of people instantly go to, they think, oh, I need to drink kombucha. I need to eat sauerkraut. Like they think of the actual foods and underestimate the power of some of the actual behaviors that we can do to, to see change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One more thing. Um, I love this last tip about promoting the healthy microbiome, which I think everybody can benefit from. 
I will say if you are dealing with chronic GI issues, some of these may be hard for you to do at first, but once we get your gut in better shape, you'll tolerate things much better. But in terms of just general microbiome health, I call it the three P's. So um, we have prebiotics, probiotics, and polyphenols. Those are three things that are really great for our microbiome. So when we think about prebiotics, those are different types of fibers that are found in plant foods. So fruits, vegetables, grains, beans, and legumes, nuts, and seeds. Um, so eating a really, really wide variety of you know what's available to you when it comes to those types of foods is going to support those good bugs in our gut and promote diversity and abundance of those good bacteria. And then probiotics are your actual like living organisms. They're the live cultures that you're going to find in yogurt. So eating some of those foods can be supportive of the microbiome as well. Um, in certain cases, we may do a supplement, not always, but again, like not excessively chugging kombucha or putting sauerkraut on everything. You don't have to go to those extremes. And honestly, when I think about long-term gut health, the prebiotics are more important than the probiotics in my opinion, because the prebiotics are what's sustaining the ecosystem in there, yeah. right? Um, Can yeah. you touch on on supplements? Because I know people are automatically thinking like, "Oh, do I need a do I need a probiotic?" And there's so many out there, and the gummies and the like. Yeah, how do you, know you need it, and if you do choose to take one, what should you look for? Yeah, so with prebiotics, I don't tend to recommend supplements a whole lot for the general population, but there are certain fiber supplements that can be very helpful when we're dealing with certain digestive conditions. So typically prebiotic supplements are going to come in a powder form. They're going to be mixed with water or a smoothie or something like that. And that's again, going to help benefit the growth of the good microorganisms in the gut. Um, we, I, I don't recommend prebiotic supplements for the general population. Condition specific, there are some that I use. With probiotics, um, supplements can be helpful. Like I always have people do a probiotic when they're taking a course of antibiotics that can be really helpful to prevent like yeast infections or um, antibiotic associated diarrhea can be really helpful. And then there are certain ones that I'll use for certain conditions, but that's very specific. And probiotics too, you have to remember a lot of these, they're transient, which means that some of them aren't microorganisms that are naturally gonna grow if you weren't taking it in a supplement. And the benefit that you get from them is going to stop when you discontinue it. So interesting. Um, yeah, that's yeah. important for people to know. Yeah, there's there's one, it's actually a probiotic yeast. It's called Saccharomyces boulardii. And I do use this one quite a bit with certain digestive disorders. And I'm pretty sure that when you stop within three days of stopping taking it, it's like exited from the gut. But while it's wow. there, it can provide a lot of benefit in terms of when we're fighting different infections or pathogens in the gut, it can be really important to boost um, secretory IgA or like our immune function in the gut. And so that question is always hard for me to answer because I don't have like a favorite probiotic that I like recommend for everybody. <laughs> yeah. And it depends on the person. And I think just mm -hmm. do your research because it's, <laughs> there's so yeah. many out there and there you, are, it may or may not need it. It may right. be just an expensive gummy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cause they can be very expensive. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. This has been so helpful. And I think so many golden nuggets for people listening. Where is the best place to find you and, and how can people reach out if they have more questions? Sure. So I am on Instagram at mindful.gut.nutritionist. That's probably my most active social media channel. I do like to hang out on there. And then my website, nourishwithclaire.com. I also have a freebie if you're interested in that. It's the five common pitfalls that actually worsen gut health. So some of those things that we talked about today, like elimination diets and things like that, and I kind of dive deep into each pitfall and then some strategies, what to do instead. So you can grab that. Um, I can send you the link if you'd like, and they could they could grab that if they want to. Um, but yeah, that's, those are the best places to find me. We will absolutely put all the links to all that in the show notes. So let's finish with a little rapid fire. Okay. Uh, favorite podcast right now? So I love um, The Ease of Hustle by Lauren Cash. Oh, I don't know is, that one. Yeah, she's a fellow dietitian, but she's a dietitian turned life coach, master coach. Um, and she really does more like business consulting and coaching. And her niche is she's kind of a master like time management person for procrastinating perfectionists, which oh, is no. everybody say, like, listening. Yeah. Including yeah. Me. <laughs> Go subscribe. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah. So that's been great for me just for business stuff and even life in general. I really like her voice is just like really calming. And I there's and they're short episodes. So it's not like a long, you know, you can get a nice quick boost of motivation from that. Love that. Mm-hmm. Favorite beverage. So I've been really into Earl Grey tea lately with honey Ooh. and cream. I clearly um, need my, that right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's been my favorite. But one one other thing I have to mention, just because it's something that I discovered since moving here is Wait, tell cane. listeners oh, where yeah. you live because okay. it's super cool. Yeah. <laughs> I live in Honolulu. Um, me and my husband moved here about nine months ago, but the farmers markets here are oh. just amazing. And sometimes I'll walk like on a Saturday morning and it'll be really hot. And they have this guy that does freshly pressed sugar cane juice. And if you've never had it, you just have to try it. It's one of the most refreshing things. It's cold and like, yeah, it's really good. It's really sweet. <laughs> it's sweet. Yeah. It's really, it's almost like, um, gosh, I don't know how to describe it. It's just like when you're hot and sweaty and like, <laughs> it's just really refreshing and they they'll mix it with passion fruit. If you want a little bit of flavor to it, Ooh. or they'll mix it with pineapple or calamansi, which is like a citrus here. It's kind of like a really tart mandarin orange. I like to get it with that mixed in. So that's like a fun treat to have on a hot day. <laughs> this sounds so yummy. I told Claire before we started recording that my husband and I were supposed to go to Hawaii and now we will definitely have to go. Yeah. And now we'll have to try sugarcane yeah, juice. How fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So sweet or salty? Oh gosh, that's so hard. I'd say salty, but I love the combo of both. <laughs> that's, that's the workaround answer. Like yeah, yeah. both. Yeah. <laughs> Always. And the last question I love to finish with guests is what is the best thing that's happened to you this week? So we are coming off of an amazing week of having some close friends that came to visit us with their daughter. And it was, it was a really lovely week, just connecting with them and showing them around and, you know, having some beach time and doing a little bit of hiking and playing with their daughter. It was, it was a lot of fun. So that was definitely the highlight of my week. So fun. Love that so much. Thank you so much, Claire, for your time, your expertise. We appreciate you, everybody. Like I said, we will put the links to all her good stuff, all the freebies in our show notes and check her out on Instagram, tag us in this episode because we want to hear what you think. Awesome. Thanks so much, Katie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fit Friends Happy Hour. If you liked this episode, don't forget to share it with a friend. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Fit Friends Happy Hour. Talk to you next time.